Dear listeners, you are tuned into WOWD 94.3 FM, and this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what you believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listeners, this week I'm joined by two terrific guests who are veterans of the interfaith scene, working to preserve religious liberty and improve religious literacy. Dr. Sabrina E. Dent is the Director of Programs and Partnerships for the Religious and Civic Leaders Track at the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum Institute. Say that three times fast. Sabrina is also the lead organizer and co-instructor for a three-year project funded by the Henry Luce Foundation to develop scholarship about African Americans and religious freedom with six historically black theological institutions. And before coming to the Religious Freedom Center, Sabrina served as the program coordinator for the Doctor of Ministry program at Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University. Welcome to you. Sabrina. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Our other guest is Usar Ghazi, who is Director of Policy and Programs at America Indivisible, a nonprofit coalition addressing anti Muslim bigotry by strengthening neighbor to neighbor ties in local communities across the United States. She's a senior fellow for religious freedom at the Freedom Forum and a commissioner on DC Mayor Muriel Bowser's Interfaith Council. She's worked as an interfaith leader and organizer in various capacities over the past decade, including, big breath, at the Interfaith Youth Corps, Kids for Peace, and the Pluralism Project at Harvard University. Welcome to you, Usra. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, glad to have you both. I'm so happy to be in the studio with the two of you for this intrepid investigation of the ins and outs of interreligious interlocution. In other words, it's time to get into some interfaith-ish. All right, so I wanted to just start this morning. We've got some old heads when it comes to interfaith work. <laughs> so for each of you, I just wanted to get sort of a, a big picture view from, from where you're standing. How do you, as people who are immersed in this work all the time, perceive the, the current status? Does it feel like we're in a heightened moment right now where where these issues of religious freedom and literacy are, are critically important? Um, absolutely. Um, I mean, any day, any moment, actually, if we turn on the news, if we listen to the radio, we can hear the stories about um, events that are happening around the world that impact um, the religious identities and the religious freedom of individuals and groups. And so uh, we are in a very critical moment right now. Uh, we're in a very critical moment because, one, um, in reflecting on how the media portrays religious groups, um, people's understanding of religious um, groups as well as religious identities um one of the things that I appreciate in the work that I do is that I have the privilege of working with Ben Marcus, who is a religious literacy specialist, who's who been on your show. Yes, he's been on your show before. Yep. Um, and talking about the complexities of religious identity, and I think um, it's so important that people have a better understanding of different religions beyond their own, or even ideologies, right? Because we don't want to leave out people who may identify as none. Mm -hmm. But um, it's important for people to develop understanding. So when people don't have that, 
that what you see in the news is what's happening, right? When you see people um, perpetuate this uh, attitude of hate and indifference without understanding, this is a result of what you get. So yes, we are in a very critical moment where people do need to know religious literacy and really um, engage and get to know one of the uh, get to know their neighbor. Mm-hmm. Like, what does your neighbor believe? So mm-hmm. I think this is a very important moment. Yeah. Well, yeah. so you're you're particularly focused on that that neighbor to neighbor. And, and person-to-person relationship there. So tell us how that affects the work that you're doing. Yeah, no, I think that, uh, you know, you began this conversation uh, reflecting on whether or not we are at a heightened time uh, in this country, maybe in the globe, when it comes to issues of religion, religious freedom. Uh, my organization works domestically in the United States on helping to address uh, the issue of racialized anti-Muslim bigotry. So the ways that communities who are Muslim or perceived to be Muslim are uh, impacted by hate, bigotry, bias incidences just because of the way they look, pray, or practice. And so um, while it may seem as if these issues are um, somehow uh, unique to the United States, I think this is very much a global phenomenon. I mean, like the State Department, the U.S. Department of State has had an Office of International Religious Freedom since 1998. Mm. Um, they, I previously worked in the Office of Religion and Global Affairs at State, and I have to tell you that I think one of the challenges when it comes to this work, especially for someone like me who's done the international type work and is now focused domestically, is when you say the term religious freedom, people automatically... T- in America, think that this is a problem for people outside over there in some other country. Mm-hmm. That religious freedom uh, means that this is an American value that we need to go out um, and defend on behalf of other people or alongside other people. And while I uh, totally agree that it's a very important uh, universal value that should be protected in all communities. Mm-hmm. We can't ignore the fact that within the United States, we have our own unique religious freedom challenges, and they look a little bit different here because we live in a country right now where people have been, uh, that government officials have called for the ban on immigrants of certain faith backgrounds, Mm -hmm. where people are not, um, who experience hate crimes and bias incidences don't have access to reporting mechanisms. In some states, they don't even exist. Um, And you have, uh, I think in the, 2016 election alone and the lead up to it, uh, there was such a heightened uh, amount of negative rhetoric aimed at specifically Americans of Muslim faith. And so we have to also, I think, look internally while we talk about the importance of religious literacy and understanding the really rich, diverse religious traditions that make up this country and the world. I mean, I'm a religious studies major. I truly value that study and that knowledge. We also can't continue to ignore the real religious freedom issues that we have in America today. Sure. A critical component to the work of defending others, right, is actually getting to know who these people are, mm-hmm. right? Who are our neighbors? What what backgrounds do they come from? If, as you were saying, it's not just Muslims, it's people who are even perceived as Muslim, right? Because people right. don't know how to distinguish between whether somebody's wearing a turban and they're a sick or or even not even what they're wearing but just how they look you know if they're a brown person who's who wears a beard maybe if they're coming from a particular country they assume that they're muslim actually they could be christian or they could you know they could be sikh or they could be hindu or whatever the case is so what is the sort of big picture of that engagement piece both in terms of the policy side and then you know community organizing side well thank you for that question um 
it, it's really fortuitous that you're asking me this question today because one of my partner organizations, the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, is about to is actually already I think published. Uh, it's a brand new 2019 American Muslim poll. It's breaking news. Breaking right news. Ten minutes. Four people listening to Tacoma Radio right now, 94.3 FM. <laughs> what we found is there's a very strong correlation between favorable views of Muslims among those people who claim to know a Muslim person and even more so among people who claim to have a close friend who is Muslim, right? And we have evidence of this in, I think, interfaith work through an organization that I sort of uh, came up through as a college student, Interfaith Youth Corps, based in Chicago, um, has uh, done a lot of research on social science theory um, and the sociology behind uh, what's required for these really deep ties to exist in local communities. And a lot of the early experiences I had with interfaith youth work was working on a local community project together, a community service initiative with people from different religious backgrounds, religious and non-religious backgrounds. And we know from research on this phenomenon that those types of experiences where you have a common project tend to build associational ties that um, are different than everyday ties like waving at your neighbor in the morning. Mm -hmm. It's when you sit with your neighbor on a local neighborhood association and have a common project that makes the real switch in the meaningfulness behind that relationship. And there's evidence of um, communities internationally that have successfully built these ties and been able to maintain some resilience in acts of in times of conflict or crisis. Yeah. And so in the work that we do at American Invisible, we're trying to help connect, especially those communities that are impacted by anti-Muslim bigotry to their local government officials in city, state, and county level governments to serve on commissions, committees, and boards. I myself am on, as you mentioned, uh, I'm a commissioner on Mayor Bowser's Interfaith Council, and we want to see a lot more of that uh, happening across the country. And what about for, for leaders themselves? Because not only are they not immune to ignorance and bigotry, you know, we can look at even just this instance with Representative Il Ilhan Omar, that they're they're perpetuating a lot of these biases and and prejudices against uh, Muslims or, or other religious minorities. Right. Uh, I think one of the most stark uh, pieces of data that has come out of this new survey, again, is the American Muslim poll from the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, is that um, only about a third of Americans state in this uh, respondents who are uh, of the general public state that they even reached out to or had any kind of communication, email, phone, in person with their congressional representatives. Mm. And um, a little bit more than a third, around 33%, I think, um, of the general public reached out to their representatives in local government. When you look at the rates at, to, at which uh, American Muslims or Americans of Muslim faith reached out to their government, it's almost half of that. Mm. So I think it's something like, if I can just quote the numbers off the top of my head, uh, about 17% of Muslims, uh, Muslim Americans reached out to their congressional representative in the last year. And so what's the, what's the impact of that? You know, obviously, we're a country that's run by that engagement, right? I mean, that's it's the, both the benefit and the problem, right? Lobbying groups that have a lot of time and attention with our representatives and so forth, get the benefits from that, right? Local community groups have to make a lot of noise. So for for the Muslim community, is the implication of what you're saying, the onus is on them to be reaching out more? Partially. Um, although, to me, as someone who, um, in my regular work, uh, who I engage with lots of government agencies and officials, I think there's a real responsibility on those officials, those representatives. I mean, take a look at the fact that, you know, only a third of your constituents 
even were able to successfully have a conversation with you, that should be really concerning to um, to representatives in Congress and in local government generally. But in particular, at a time of uh, a, a real increase in anti-Muslim bigotry institutionalized in legislation with anti-Sharia bills and anti-foreign law bills introduced in a number of states across the country and passed in a bunch of states as well, uh, where policymakers are making policies about and to restrict the rights of Muslims of American Americans of Muslim faith, um, how can we let them continue to make those policies if they're not even talking to the people that these policies are about? And so while we do a lot of work in local communities to talk about the importance of understanding and assessing and growing your civic health, at the same time, we're talking to government agencies and officials to say, hey, it is your responsibility to build spaces for inclusion, not just for these bigotry-impacted communities, but for all of your constituents. Mm -hmm. This is Interfaith-ish on W. OWD 94.3 FM. We've been talking this morning with Usar Ghazi, the Director of Policy and Programs at America Indivisible. My other guest is Dr. Sabrina E. Dent, the Director of Programs and Partnerships for the Religious and Civic Leaders Track at the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum Institute. Sabrina, (laughs) got through that. So um, some of the work that you've been doing program recently focuses on, as I understand it, sort of this intersection of race and Mm -hmm. faith and so forth. So so tell us about, about some of that, especially in light of the context of of the rise in white nationalism and inflamed issues of, of racism in our society. Absolutely. So um, we've been very fortunate at the Religious Freedom Center where um, our mission basically is to educate the public on um, religious liberty as a constitutional and human right, which is very critical to talking about the project that we're doing. Uh, we received funding from the Henry Luce Foundation um, to do a three-year project focused on African Americans and religious freedom. Right. So when you look at the larger narrative, that's been told about the country, it doesn't look at the experience of, I'm going to say, enslaved Africans. Um, The fact that enslaved Africans that came, 30% of them were identified as Muslim, right? So it doesn't talk about when the founding framers were doing this beautiful work centered around our right to religious freedom, that it didn't take into consideration that um, enslaved Africans didn't have that right. They didn't even have human freedom. Mm. And what we're doing is disrupting the narrative, right? We're disrupting the narrative by saying, hey, there's another narrative that needs to be considered in talking about religious freedom. I'm very privileged to be in a position where I can exercise my right to religious freedom, but I dare not forget the history of my ancestors um, that went through this experience. So this project is a three-year project in partnership with the six historically black theological institutions that allows us to work with African-American scholars who are doing this work in many different disciplines. So we hosted a launch event last year And we had the pleasure of having Dr. Brad Braxton, who's from the National Museum of African American History and Culture, to come and really talk about um, the experience of African Americans uh, from our history standpoint, but also through the lens of museum education, right? Mm -hmm. To look at our larger story that is told through the Smithsonian Museum about our experiences. Uh, We had the pleasure of having Dr. Yolanda Pierce, who's the dean at Howard University School of Divinity, to talk about it. 
the um, the violence of religious freedom that has taken place, right? When you think of it, it wasn't just, you know, uh, the uh, that we didn't have the right to religious freedom. There was violence put upon mm. black and brown bodies that pertain to this as well because we're also enslaved. Right, absolutely, to prevent them from practicing and to force you into something else, right, mm-hmm. to practice something else. Um, but we're also in partnership with other organizations like the BJC, who um, they Which do. Is- uh, the ba- I'm sorry, the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious <laughs> so, Liberty, right? I just want to make sure that like, yeah. folks outside our little <laughs> interfaith bubble who don't know all the acronyms. Right. So. I like, I, it's normal for me, right? It's like, this is my life. But the work that we're doing with the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, um, Charles Watson, who's mm-hmm. there, who's the education the director. Absolutely. He's definitely, he's been on the show. Um, an incredible person that's doing education. And actually, he was my introduction into this work mm-hmm. as well. But this project is centering this narrative on June 7th we're actually hosting an event at the museum and the pro and the program is called disrupt the narrative centering african-american perspectives on religious freedom and so we have individuals like charity woods who's from the interfaith voices for reproductive justice Mm. what does it mean to look at um religious freedom through the lens of reproductive justice as it pertains to women's bodies women's health um what does it look like when you're talking about um education right and education spaces. So um, one of the reasons why we do the work that we do is that we found that there was a gap in education, especially in theological education, Mm. as it pertains to religious liberty. That's not anything that's talked about in that curriculum. And so um, part of our partnerships helps fill that gap and provide this education. And I think that is important because when you think about the fact, um, the First Amendment survey that came out last year showed that less than 19% of Americans can actually name religious freedom as a First Amendment right. Mm. It just proves that we need to have more civic engagement and education. But this project also says that we need to raise the voices of underrepresented individuals in the community, under, um, underrepresented voices in this narrative mm-hmm. about religious freedom. So it's not just about us, but it's also bringing in conversations about our Muslim Americans, our friends here. Also, Baha'is. We've also, we actually had um, friends from the Baha'is of the United States to participate in a course that we offered. Again, telling that narrative through a different lens. I'm also excited because we're going to have Mandisa Thomas who is the president and founder of Black Nonbelievers. Mm. Right? So to have that voice to be a part of the conversation. Specifically bringing atheists into an interfaith conversation. Absolutely. Mm. And it's very critical, right? Mm. Because if religious freedom is for all then we need to have all voices at the table Mm -hmm. and to be a part of the conversation. And you can't talk about people and not have them at the table and allow them the space to do the work. And especially in the context of the African-American community where I imagine, I mean, obviously we we know that the church, in spite of what it is that you you were saying at the the beginning where, where, as you were saying, 30% of, I I think you were saying, the The enslaved enslaved Africans that were coming originally Mm -hmm. to this country are coming from a Muslim background. As you're saying, the history of the community is, is one of conversion, perhaps under duress, but that's obviously evolved into a very diverse Christian tradition within the African-American community. It's a complex tradition. Right. And, but it's also not the only expression of, of religious values and faith within the African-American community. So what I'm hearing from you is, is involving 
black Muslims or mm-hmm. black Baha'is or black atheists or, or probably black a myriad of other, other, yes, other groups yes. is also a part of the work that you've been doing. Or, Absolutely. Or Everyone is welcome to the table in mm-hmm. this conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want. We want people to come and um, be a part of this discussion, right? Because we have to think through these things together. Yeah. And that's so critical if we're going to be um, a better nation, if we're going to be a better country. This is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We've been talking this morning with Dr. Sabrina E. Dent, the Director of Programs and Partnerships for the Religious and Civic Leaders Track at the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum Institute. I'm going to get that <laughs> all the way through one of these times. Our other guest is Usra Ghazi, Director of Policy and Programs at America Indivisible. I want to just take a step back and talk to both of you a little bit about, about how it is that you both got involved in this work. Young as you are, I'm sure it was just a couple of years ago, you yes. know, uh, when you were in high school. What was it that, um, that got you initially involved in doing interfaith work such that you're so deeply immersed in it these days? Shall I go? Oh, go for sure. it. Okay. Um, I think I immigrated to the United States with my family when I was four years old. From where? From Pakistan. Okay. And I think for anyone, at least I won't speak for other Muslims, For as somebody who immigrated, I feel that um, interfaith work is just required. Mm. Uh, you, you, you can't not do it because people will always ask you questions about why you're not eating lunch during Ramadan, mm. which is coming up, by the way. Right. Um, or, uh, you know, why you didn't dance with so-and-so at the school, whatever, function. Somehow I feel like that's a, 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 a personal anecdote there <laughs> in your own history. <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty of personal anecdotes. Um, one I will share is uh-huh. uh, I have this very clear recollection as a... I think I must have been in kindergarten or first grade of walking to uh, school mm-hmm. with my mom and an auntie from the um, from like a neighboring apartment building, her kids and me and my siblings, my mom and this aunt wearing like the full Pakistani garb. So uh, not at that age, having a sense of how different or odd that looks like to non-Pakistani people, but walking down the sidewalk and neighborhood boys like riding up to us or past us on their bikes screaming out, and I quote, Buddha, Buddha, Gandhi, Gandhi. Yeah. And uh, my they're, little... They're just throwing in all sorts <laughs> of stuff there. My little first grade mind couldn't exactly wrap around what that meant for me as a Muslim person, mm-hmm. like two very different figures from very different communities. Um, and so my mom would be like, oh, don't worry, that's, you know, that's about somebody else. But so I'm just trying to share this to say, when you look different, you get things you know, said to you or asked of you um, that other communities might not if they're in like a majority uh, faith community. So that's how I sort of found myself in these types of conversations. Mm-hmm. But it really was um, in um, entering high school where I f- was faced with probably the most religious diversity I'd mm-hmm. ever experienced in my life. And you grew up in, in Skokie, Illinois, right? right. Which is a, a, a pretty diverse place to It's to pretty diverse. Um, but I was still like, I think I was one of just a handful of Muslims in oh, right. my middle schools mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, the only kid in my junior high that wore a hijab at the time. Mm. Um, but when I'm in high school, when I get to high school, there are all these other Muslim kids mm. and then a bunch of Jewish kids and Christian kids and pagan kids and all kinds of kids. Mm. Um, you know, that was when I first developed a little bit of jealousy for the Christian student group because they were called Humble 2-1, like H2O. And 
and uh, they had guitars and sang songs. <laughs> that's, that's special. <laughs> I know. And I was a little bit jealous. I would never say it to anybody else, but uh-huh. I was a little bit jealous because their meetings looked a lot more fun than the very serious, you know, internally, you know, deeply spiritual kind of uh, meetings that I helped to coordinate or attended at the so, Muslim so club. So you started Halal to One. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh! It was right there. I never. You could. It was I right never there on the table. <laughs> but you know, like, so it was actually um, in entering high school. Um, our community, my mosque community, had always done interfaith panels, which hmm. tended to be like the rabbi, the imam, the priest, all go. like older guys, not a lot of hair, talking about whatever. Except on their face. <laughs> yeah, except on their face. Um, and so I didn't really see myself in any kind of role to engage in hmm. that kind of a public way with different faith communities. And there was this event that my high school organized called the Quran and the Bible in the Light of Science. Whoa. And it was meant to be a dialogue. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's even like video recording of this somewhere on YouTube. Mm-hmm. So I went to this thinking like, oh, this is interesting. And it's in my high school auditorium where I'm going to be a freshman next year. Whoa. So I... Everybody can look up video of <laughs> ninth grade Usra. <laughs> Luckily, <fancy>. I'm, <laughs> I'm not in it because I was in the audience. I'm also not in it because I was late. And I ended up in the balcony sitting next to two women who I just assumed were from the Christian community. Mm because I didn't recognize them from my own community. Uh, there were tons of Muslims in that crowd because there is, tends to be a larger population of Muslims in Skokie. And what ended up happening was not a dialogue, but a debate where each scholar mm. was sort of like jabbing at the other. Oh, wow. And at one point, the Muslim scholar said to the Christian scholar, oh, you're supposed to be able to speak in tongues, so I challenge you to speak in tongues. And the you know Christian scholar saying all kinds of things about the Quran and about the Muslim scholar. And because there were so many Muslims in the auditorium, a lot of booing and a Ooh. lot of jeering. Mm. And I'm sitting next to these two women who I assume are from the Christian community sinking further and further into my seat. Mm. And I told myself that that's not what interfaith, interfaith is supposed to be and would go on in high school to do a lot more youth-led, youth-voice-led youth interfaith conversations and dialogues. And it kind of grew from there with my involvement with Interfaith Youth Corps. But, That's you know, it, my, my origin story comes from a little bit of a darker place. Yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm yeah. sure, you know, unfortunately, that's sort of common ground for, for a lot of people as well. Then yeah. You sort of had some sort of traumatic hit an upside the head. Uh, Sabrina, what about, what about for you? How did you find your, yourself into this work? Right. So I think uh, as you uh, gave an example of, it's a journey, right? Yeah. It's, it's uh, several events that might happen. So for me personally, um, I grew up in the Pentecostal tradition. Um, my dad was a preacher. And um, so I have a lot of love for the black church. I've been Baptist and everything. So it was a part of a, it's been part of a journey for me. Um, one of the things that, um, there are several things that led me to do this is one um, I met um, in undergrad I had to take a class it was my freshman English course and the the professor told us that we had to read The Power of Myth um, by Bill Moores and we had to read The Tao mm. and for me it was the first time in my life that I felt like I had permission to look at something outside of the Pentecostal tradition mm. like to, to really explore a religion outside of um, what I was familiar with and so that was one of the things another thing that happened is um, I met a friend named Sloan Lee um, when I was in the New York area 
And Sloan didn't talk about religion. He talked about the universe, right? He mm-hmm. didn't identify with any particular religious group or anything. He was just Sloan. Mm-hmm. And we just had the best relationship and we became friends. And so for me, it tried to, it broke away from some of the things that I had been told um, and with the embedded theologies that I was given growing up. And I was just like, okay, this, this, the, you know, this stuff doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But also it was a journey because at some point in my life, I studied Scientology. Mm. I mean, going from Pentecostal to Baptist that's, was a big no-no yeah, that's, uh, already. It's a pretty um, long walk yeah, over it to Scientology. <laughs> I did, but you know what? Yeah. I learned so much yeah, from yeah. being a part of that community. I don't call myself a Scientologist because I by no means was that. I took Scientology classes, mm-hmm. um, but I also did Buddhist meditation. At one point, I was married to a Catholic mm. um, whose family was from Haiti. So it's like, you know... My life just had this mixture of things right. um, that was happening. And then what was the precipitating event for me was when I was at the Samuel D. with Proctor School of Theology, I was struggling because I had all, all these experiences from pe- with people from different religious identities. Um, and I'm coming into like my uh, Master Divinity program and I'm thinking about these things and these experiences and these relationships. And the dean at the time, Dr. John W. Kenny, um, invited me to do it independent study and he said why don't you do an independent study on comparative theologies because for some reason I was drawn to Buddhism and I did this comparative study and so I was very intentional about attending different events and I found at the time it was called the Interfaith Council of Greater Richmond mm-hmm. and they were hosting an event for International Peace Day mm-hmm. and um, so it was that they were hosting it at the Unity of Richmond um, Church and so because I was in Richmond, Virginia at the time mm-hmm. and so I walked in the door and there was this woman who was just absolutely pleasant and welcoming and I was just like who is she? She was so hospitable and her name is Lynn Johnston and she was a member of the Interfaith Council and so that event just meant so much to me to be a part of the community and it was was just a beautiful event but I took my child with me so I think at the time my son was maybe like four or five years old and they were singing this song um, and just seeing his engagement in that space just reaffirmed um, what, what I wanted to give to my child as a mm-hmm. gift mm-hmm. and that was interfaith experiences yeah. Yeah. and so that brought me to the place that I am now and I got actively involved eventually became the president of the organization for two years and here I am now and then um, there was intersection as far as my doctoral work and in looking at interfaith and race relations right. so there it was a journey that yeah. brought me to this place and so from everything that I've experienced I've taken a bit of part of that, uh, each part of that, and that's been a part of my spiritual formation. Right, right, right. Well, that seems like, you know, with any of this work, I find that it's it's hard to just make a clean line with sort of an academic study of it, right? Mm-hmm. Because so much of it is is around lived experience right. and about personal yes. relationships mm-hmm. and people that are part of our lives, you know, whether part of our family or part of our friend circles or, you know, folks that we care about in the community, what have you, so... That's beautiful. It's beautiful to see that. So, as I said, you guys have been been around the block a couple of times with these things, and uh, you know, I'm I'm curious to to hear some reflections from the both of you just about times in which interfaith stuff has has gone wrong a little <laughs> bit. Times which folks have have been well intentioned, perhaps, but fallen squarely on their faces. Do you have any any good stories for us about <laughs> oh, yes. interfaith fails? 
I, you know, honestly, <laughs> when you ask that question, I only think of my own interfaith family. That's fine. So I know Sabrina might have a story similar to this. Uh, I, I came into my religiosity in junior high and high school. And by the time I got to college, I was, um, you know, pretty religious and, and trying to hold true to some, um, uh, you know, the values, like social values and practices, like uh, not shaking hands with men or hugging men. And mm-hmm. like I-, I told you already that I started wearing hijab in or a headscarf in junior high. Um, but in interfaith work, that meant that I was often coming into contact with lots of loving people who wanted to give hugs, high fives and shake hands. And so I was often the one who'd be like, you know, putting my hand on my heart and saying, I'm sorry, but I don't shake hands. (laughs) And by college, it got so exhausting. Right, right. And so... You've got to negotiate the spaces of who you're around with that. Right. And then I was just like, all right, well, I guess I'll... I guess I'll try to go easy on people and at least shake people's hands because that's just courteous and businesslike. And you know, I'm not, I still don't prefer to hug men. I still don't like have lots of physical contact with men I'm not related to. But in college, I was just like, all right, I'll just shake people's hands. So um, there was this interfaith tabling fair at the student center at DePaul University in Chicago, my alma mater. And um, I went down to go like I was the interfaith intern for university ministry. So I went down to meet different faith-based groups um, who had set up their tables. And I noticed uh, a Jewish Jewish student organization there. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go up there and, like, make their acquaintance and get to know them, build relationships. And so there was a young woman sitting at a table and a guy who was standing next to her, like, just giving up pliers or something. So I went up to the lady, the young woman, the student, and I said, hey, I'm Yusra. It's really great to meet you. Thanks for being here. Uh, I go up to the guy and I immediately extend my hand and say, hey, you know, shalom. It's great to meet you. You know, working in our religious right. literacy. Right. And the guy immediately takes his hand, puts it on his heart oh. and goes, I'm so sorry. Yes. But it's against my religion to touch people of the opposite yeah. gender. Who is this loose Muslim woman trying yeah. to shake my hand? I can't tell you how pissed I was, pardon my language, that... I got told about <laughs> something that I should have been, you know, practicing. Right. I was so mad at myself. It was such a fail. And uh, I still, you know, obviously, this is years and years later. I still think about it. You know, yeah. I, so again, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I think that you most know of the fails are my own. The, the, the flip on that I experienced even just this weekend is I've got some, some Muslim friends, you know, who I, I know the couple, right? The, the, the married couple. I see them together all the time, love them to death. And we all, you know, we hug each other and stuff. And when I'm over at their house and everything, we're saying hello, goodbye, whatever, we're hugging. And we were at this event. And my natural inclination was to hug my friend, this woman. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, wait, we're in like a space where right. I'm not sure if I can do this. So I yeah. definitely, you know, sort of had to do the air hug oh, sort yeah. of, you know, from across the room, whatever. So oh, it goes, yeah. it goes all the way. I get the air high fives, the air That's fist right. bumps. That's right, <laughs> yeah. just, a, just a fist in the air. Oh, yeah. Sabrina, what about, what about you? Oh, Memorable yes. interfaith fails? I've certainly had those experiences before. Yeah, when you have the awkward moment where you, because I'm the opposite, right? I'm a hugger, right? Yeah, so yeah. my thing has been like going up to people like, hey, I mean, usually I ask for permission, right? Mm-hmm. But if I know the person, I want to hug. And so there was a time where I went to hug someone and it was like this and or extend my hand and they did mm-hmm. the same thing. They put the hand on the heart. But then you try to do this awkward thing with your hands because you don't know what to do because <laughs> that moment has already mm-hmm. happened. But you know what? Most recently, um, 
there is an imam that came from Nigeria to visit um, the Religious Freedom Center. And I actually met him at the Parliament of the World's Religions at Longar, oh, which okay. is like the most beautiful thing for that to happen. The Sikh so, community meal. Yes, when the Sikh community, uh, communal meal. And so mm -hmm. he just happened to sit down. But he came here um, to the United States, well, Washington, D.C., recently for a visit. And he was with a group of imams. And so in my head, it was like, okay, how? How do I greet him? Although we had befriended each other before with this group of imams, like I wanted to make sure I was within protocol and everything. Mm -hmm. So when I saw him, I wasn't trying to be like cold, but I was being mindful of the fact that I don't know protocol with all the other moms that were present. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, hi, it's good to see you. And it was just very like cold very for somebody. <laughs> this very, very, standing, very like, oh, I thought, we, I thought right. I was down to Sabrina. Exactly. So, but it was funny because at one point, um, we all had to go down um, in the elevator to the first floor and um, one of the other moms had left his uh, phone upstairs or we had to go back upstairs mm -hmm. to get someone else and it was just the two of us in the elevator and then we were like hey how are you doing and gave each other hugs and so it's always that awkwardness yeah. of like protocol and also being mindful of food that's right right yeah. so you know being mindful of like the different communities and making sure that everything is labeled and so we've had moments where we're just like quickly trying to say like okay what is this so yeah so it's just all the those different things that come up, um, those lighthearted moments. Can I tell a really quick food story? <laughs> yeah. Sure, time? Okay. So um, I got a nickname in high school that I'm not proud of because I did something related to interfaith and uh -oh. food. So um, I was on the newspaper with a really wonderful woman who's Jewish, who um, I'm still friends with uh, on Facebook. And uh, she went around during like a Jewish holiday, I can't remember what it was, with these little like Star of David cookies in the editorial room of our newspaper. Um, and they had like this like sugary blue kind of frosting thing on top. And as she was going around, I noticed everybody's teeth and lips were turning blue. And I was like, I'm not having that. <laughs> so she comes up to me and she goes, hey, Yisra, it's my faith holiday. And I wanted to offer you the Star of David cookie. I'm sure she didn't call it a Star of David cookie. Probably just a cookie. Anyway, so I told her, oh, you know, that's so sweet. But I can't have those because it's against my religion. <laughs> and she... Her face turned really red, and she was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, Yusra. And I kind of let her feel that way for a little while <laughs> until until towards the end of our time together, in which I told her, you know, I was just kidding. I didn't is, want is a cookie. Your anti-Zionist stance. Yeah, <laughs> and she goes, Yusra, you're abusra. Abusra. Yeah. Oh, no. You're abusra. How could you have made this like, joke on me? Oh, yeah. Wow. But, you know, I, I turned it into a thing, and... Put it on the back of my flag football team jersey. Oh so, did you really? Yeah, oh. it that's worked a, out. That's a good right? flag yeah. football yeah. team. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to run into abuse. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so I've done some terrible interfaith food things. I've also yeah. been on the receiving end of bacon and ham, so I think it's even. There you go. Right. There you go. Right. I'll tell. I'll tell you one. So um, on nicknames and things. So I was at this event one time. You know, I was there as a as a Baha'i representative, and clearly the person was like, "Okay, we're here. We've got a, a rabbi, we've got a priest here." I don't know what this Baha'i guy does, so I'm just going to go with Imam Gordon. So they just called me Imam oh, Gordon for the whole event. Oh and I was like, no, I'll just, I'll take that. I'll just, I'll be Imam for the day. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was my label. Well, Imam, thank you for giving us some laughs. Right. Happy, happy Absolutely. to have you guys. We should laugh more. All right, yes. we're going to. 
This is uh this has been a uh, a jolly uh, interfaith ish discussion here on WOWD ninety four point three FM. We've been talking with Sabrina Dent. I'm just going to say of the Freedom Forum Institute yes. and Ustrakasi of America Indivisible. So usually in the second half of our program we have a uh, a spirited discussion, asking questions between our two guests. We already did a little bit of that in a bit more of an informal capacity, but I I did want to um, give my guests an opportunity. If you guys have any follow up questions that you want to ask each other, anything that uh, is on your heart this morning? Oh, absolutely. Um, first of all, I, I want to say I, I absolutely love you, Yusra. <laughs> the feeling is mutual. Yes, we have a wonderful opportunity to work together. So I know recently um, Sports Illustrated released a new cover, right, mm-hmm. um, fe- um, featuring Halima Aiden, which is um, a Muslim woman from Kenya. She's a refugee from Kenya, and she's the first woman to be featured on um, the magazine cover wearing a full hijab and a burkini. And for me, right, I think about, like, women of color that have, um have have been looking for opportunities to be seen heard visible in the media like for me I remember when Takara Jones um, was on TV, a full-figured African-American woman that's a, a supermodel, um, and to see that as a full-figured woman to be um, to be affirmed, like I wonder, I wanted to know, like what did it, what did it mean for you, or did it mean anything to you to see um, Halima to be featured on Sports Illustrated, especially um, with her identity as a Muslim woman to be affirmed in that way? I um, initially, when I first saw that, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, um, she's a beautiful lady, young woman, and I think that she has um, uh, seen a lot of professional success, um, which is really inspiring considering some of the trials and tribulations she went through in her mm-hmm. personal life. And so I, you know, I was touched by this um, opportunity that she had. Um, and yet my social media is a buzz. There are, I have friends on all sides of the spectrum, Muslim right. friends, Muslim women friends, some who say, this is horrific, uh, mm. you know, um, not only to perpetuate or, uh, you know, I- implicitly endorse this publication that, you know, sexualizes women and objectifies their bodies, but now to um, make Muslim American women complicit in that. So there are people who say that kind of a thing. Okay. There are friends of mine who, similar to what you're saying, say, well, this is a really proud moment for us. You know, a, a couple of insights, just from my personal perspective, I think, one, uh, it would be great if there were opportunities for Halima to be featured um, in ways that uh, acknowledge some of her personal story Absolutely. and accomplishment yes. um, in publications that aren't about, you know, men buying them to look at scantily clad ladies. You know? So, like, I love yeah. to see her in something else. Um, uh, that said, you know, like very early on when I started doing interfaith work, um, a Muslim photographer um, published a coffee table book. This is like in, I don't know, like 2007 or something. The book is called Eye Cover. Mm -hmm. And it featured these big, beautiful photos of all kinds of um, Muslim American women. I think Ibtihaj Muhammad was possibly in there. or Maybe it was a boxer. There were different women. Uh, Somehow I made it in there. And I'll tell you why. It's not because I have Halima's beautiful face and, you know, great physique. Uh, Thanks, Sabrina. I'm not fishing for compliments, but thank you very much. Um, It's because that book I cover featured all kinds of Muslim women Mm. from all kinds of background who looked all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest complaints that I've seen coming out of this whole Sports Illustrated thing and other instances where 
Muslims or hijab being objectified in advertising or media comes up or is criticized is the fact that when we talk about Muslim women, it's that hijab clad immigrant looking woman Mm -hmm. that people want to laud and celebrate you know, in advertisements and things like that and shows. And Muslim women look a lot of different ways. Sabrina, right. there are Muslim women who look like you. Right, absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. there are Muslim women that probably look a little bit like the imam here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are all kinds right. of Muslim women. And so while I think it's, I, you know, I commend her on moving up in her career and I think I would love to see her in more uh, publications that uh, that reflect on different aspects and talents and gifts that she has, I I would also like to... You know, caution everyone um, who is trying to raise representation of diverse communities to not then only put one image of what a Muslim woman looks like. Absolutely. I agree. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to ask that question, right? Because, I mean, it's like the beauty of African-American women, right? It's so diverse. And so I think people need to realize that. um, And that's why it points back to religious literacy, right? And understanding that there's a spectrum and that there are different beliefs and different ways in which people are represented as well. So Thank you for answering that. Um, so I'm very, also very curious to know what, what drives you to continue to be passionate about interfaith work. Um, I got to say it's people like you. It's people like Jack. It's people who do really inspiring interfaith work who I think, you know, I want to be like that person. I, I, I really live off of the energy I get from folks like you, Sabrina, and Jack, and others. So um, thank you for that. No, and I, Matt, do we have time to, for a quick question towards Sabrina from my... Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So... Um, Sabrina, you very kindly led a conversation we coordinated across the nation on Mm -hmm. April 13th to mark Thomas Jefferson's birthday. Mm. We did small living room conversations on the theme of reckoning with Jefferson, Mm. race, religion, and the America we want to be. So not just crapping on our past, but like what kind of a country we want to be in the future. That's a, that's a title of a different series. (laughs) (laughs) But I will ask you to crap on our past a little bit right now. Um, What's up with Jefferson? Like, how do you, as someone, um, you know, a woman of faith, this guy owned a Quran. He had some interesting relationships with the Bible. Like, why, what do you think was going on in that brain, that mm. Jeffersonian brain? And then how do you feel about things like Hamilton and, and these narratives about the founding fathers that, like, laud them and how amazing they were, given the fact that things were not so great if you had been living there at that time, it wouldn't have been right. really great. In like one minute or less. In one minute. I was, I was saying it shortly like this, right? That's the premise of how I enter into the conversation and doing the work that I do around religious freedom and um, interfaith work, right? Um, my friend Charles Watson has said many times, like, your heroes are not my heroes. Because sometimes mm. people assume that we have the same heroes. Yeah. But what, I, what it reminds me of is um, the complexities of our human identities and our beliefs and how we navigate the world. Like, we could do something beautiful one minute and do something horrible at the same time, Mm -hmm. right? So you have like these framers that had this beautiful idea of religious freedom, but were horrible in the area of humanity, right? Mm-hmm. And were horrible in really understanding human dignity. And so it's very complex. Um, so I have this, like, I would say love-hate relationship for what they've done, yeah. because I do, I celebrate the fact that I have these freedoms, and these freedoms are being protected around the world. At the same time, we do have to talk about the narratives mm-hmm. and the experiences of enslaved Africans that happen. And we have to talk about what does that look like for the future right we have to have the conversations about the history we have to be unapologetic about it um but we have to be compassionate when we have these stories with individuals 
Because for some people, they're just hearing this, right? They're just yeah. hearing the other narrative. Mm-hmm. So I think it's about um, a reckoning yeah. with um, ourselves, our identities, the complexities of it, the complexities of our nation, yeah. and being determined to move forward together in that. And that requires relationship, right? When we participated in that event, it was about building relationship with some incredible people that I know and deepening that. Yeah. People that are already doing yeah. interfaith work like Terrence Mayo and Cassandra Lawrence and Kevin. Kevin O'Brien and mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Sekou Sankofa, who's actually a host here for Tacoma yeah, Radio for the Education Sekou. Trading Post. Yeah. So I, I just think that it's so important for us to take a deeper dive and get to know one another. It goes back to religious literacy and getting to know your neighbor, yeah, yeah. being personal, and then um, and then wrestling with the history together and and being okay with that yeah. and being okay with being uncomfortable yeah. about those tough moments too. You are a powerhouse. <laughs> Thank You're you. You're amazing. You seriously are. Like. <laughs> I appreciate you There's so much. There's a lot of love it's in this a bit, room. Right, yes, it's just a big, really love, big love like. fest here on Interfaith-ish, <laughs> WOWD 94.3 FM. That's what we do every Wednesday morning. I want to thank both of my guests. Thank Bishle you. Ghazi, Ghazi from uh, Inter- uh, America Indivisible. See, now I'm even the easy name. I'm, I'm <laughs> Bishle Ghazi from America Indivisible and Sabrina Dent from, I'm just going to say, the Freedom Forum Institute. You can look up yes. all her details. Guys, before we go, um, do you uh, have any uh, quick things you want to plug? I mean, you gave a, a, a whole list of events and things that you're working on. Absolutely. I mean, check us out at the Religious Freedom Center, religiousfreedomcenter.org. We're doing a lot of amazing things. Um, we offer civil dialogue trainings. We offer um, education for um, educators, like civic education for educators about this topic through professional development modules. But check out our event on June 7th. It is a public event. It's open to anyone who's willing to come and engage um, and disrupt the narrative centering African Americans on religious freedom. It is going to be hosted at the museum and it is free. So you have to register for this event. But I would say um, get engaged. Like, you know, want to learn more about religious liberty. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just drop our website www.americaindivisible.org Lots of vowels. Please spell it correctly. And if you want to follow the report that's being released today, it's hashtag ISPU uh, poll, P-O-L-L, ISPU poll on social media, and you'll get to see some of that data right away. Very cool. Thank you both. Thank you. Dear listeners, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my terrific guests, Mr. Ghazi of America Indivisible and Sabrina Dent of the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum Institute. Thank you very much. And as always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow Interfaith Istronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, keeping everything together behind the scenes, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher, for all the great music. And thank you, dear listeners, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of Interfaith-ish episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. We're on social media at Interfaith-ish. And keep writing us about Interfaith-ish, you wish dish, at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org. <laughs>